back to In the Context of Empire. This is a very special episode because on the podcast today, we have the original co-host of the show, John Lancaster. And of course, I am still Matt McKenna. Hey, yo. <laughs> it is really an honor to have you back. How are you doing? Matt, it is good to be back. I'm doing quite well. Many things have changed, Matt, as you know, operating currently from the other side of the world right now. We'll get into that in a moment. Thanks for having me back, Matt. It's good to be here. Well, having you back, of course, is, is no problem at all. You are the joint founder of this podcast. Uh, yeah. But John is joining us from Vietnam, and we're going to do kind of a Quentin Tarantino thing and backtrack, explain why is John calling from Vietnam right now. And <laughs> I know some of some listeners may suspect that he was in the CIA the whole time, and he's <laughs> Um, but in reality, there's a, there's actually a quite compelling and I would say heartwarming story about as to why John is calling us from Vietnam at the moment. Um, but I would like to just catch up with you, John. I mean, I, I haven't seen you in a few days. We work together. Um, I think I last saw you on Wednesday. We've been talking via text and WhatsApp ever since, but, uh, this is kind of a unique situation, and we haven't recorded together in, I think, since last June. So a lot has changed for both of us. You're, we're about to find out why you're in Vietnam, and also uh, I've slowed down significantly in putting out podcasts. Although I am uh, hoping to get that going again quite soon. Uh, I do have a daughter now, which has limited my own capacity for time. That's not an excuse, but it is information <laughs> as to. Why there's been less of an output. I, I have had some great guests recently. We, you know, I've had Justin Poder twice. I've had Alex Avina. Uh, I had Joe Emmersberger. And we've talked about some great issues. But I would like to get the podcast going at the, maybe not the level we had it going at the end of 2020, early 2021, because that was a pretty intense schedule where we, we were doing a podcast once or twice a week. But I think I can get wild. it. There were some times we were doing two in one day. <laughs> we were. I think we interviewed David Vine and Scott Horton in a span yeah. of two hours, <laughs> or maybe <laughs> three hours. Like Both of those interviews went pretty long, one in particular. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's really good to just have it back with the two original co-hosts today. And I do want to catch up with you, John, because you're doing something really interesting that I think is really directly connected to the kind of content that we try to put out. So Let's try to talk in broad terms here. John, what are you doing in Vietnam? Who the hell knows, man? <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think actually a part of what, what I'm doing here in Vietnam comes out of this podcast, really, because you know a lot of what we talk about, um, as we've kind of discussed in, in previous podcasts, a lot of what we talked about are, are things that I really haven't thought about until recently um, regarding kind of American empire and, and American wars and their effects. So yeah, so I'm in a, currently Hanoi, Vietnam, and I'm going to be conducting some research kind of around that topic of the uh, American Vietnam War and its, its impacts. But in particular, as you all know, I'm a teacher I'm interested in how the Vietnam War is being taught and be, being remembered here in Vietnam. And I think, uh, you know, we can go into the particulars of why I chose that topic, but that is kind of the broad view of why I'm here. 
Well, I think it's a fantastic idea. And, you know, as we've talked about on the show, and we've even written articles about it, both yourself and, and I, that the way we teach American wars, even me saying American wars, <laughs> lends a bit of a bias and a perspective, that the way that we teach the wars that the United States has fought in, or don't teach them, really lends a perspective and creates a narrative to how students in this country grow up. And of course, the Vietnam War is really not taught sufficiently. Like if we were to, my opinion, of course, is that if we were teaching the Vietnam War correctly, there would not have been an Iraq War. Uh, there was, there would not have been a first Iraq War. There certainly would not have been a second Iraq War. There would not have been a invasion of Libya. And to me, that's enough evidence. And we'll get into the specifics. But to me, the fact that the United States could go from fighting a war in Vietnam, which was devastating, and I, I really want to focus on what it did to Vietnam, but it was devastating to the United States, you know, from what Americans knew about the war alone, it was devastating, you know, the, the, mm. the absolute uh, uh, destruction of trust in the government, the obviously the almost 60,000 Americans killed the, the protests on college campuses, the complete just missed loss of trust in the government uh, and our leaders, I, I think is what most Americans think of with the war. But still, I, I think there's just a total failure to grasp what this war was from yeah. the primary victims. And I don't just mean people in Vietnam. I also mean people in Cambodia and Laos. And I also don't just mean the people at the time, because as, as you know, John, because you've mm. you've been to this region before, the lasting effects of the war extend far beyond just the actual war itself. So maybe we can get into that. Um, but let's yeah. start with some basic questions here. John, what are you hoping to accomplish with this trip to Vietnam? What are you going to be doing? And then what are you hoping to bring back with you? Yeah. Um, and right before I answer that question, just a comment on kind of what you were saying there, because I think that like what you're saying about the power of teaching history is something that we both understand uh, and probably why we're history teachers. But I think that that can't be understated is that, you know, if we can teach this history, quote unquote, correctly, you know, we can avoid a lot of these future blunders, and a lot of these future like terrible incidents, um, you know, the invasion of Iraq and, and all these other things that you're talking about. Um, and the other thing that, that you're discussing is particularly interesting to me. It's kind of like the context for, um, my, my research here is like the, the focus on the Vietnam war in, you know, traditional American classrooms or so it seems is very focused on America as the victim. Like what happened as a result of this war on American, Americans domestically, you know, the protests that, like you're saying, the distrust of the government. And that's like kind of bizarre to me because of course the utter destruction is not in america it's it's in this this region in, in particular for my research in vietnam um and so that focus that you know american students get of just like what happened to america as a result of this war as opposed to you know the the utter destruction of, of what happened in southeast asia is is just telling in its in and of itself but at any rate what i'm hoping to do and kind of what i'm doing and I'm kind of like still ironing out exactly the method to do this, but I'm planning on 
going to different um, Vietnamese high schools in northern Vietnam in particular. We'll see how many I can hit. But um, I'm hoping to, to chat with, with teachers um, who are teaching history, who are teaching what, you know, this conflict. It's actually interesting because, you know, they, it has a couple of different names uh, in Vietnam. Like they'll call it, um, you know, the Second Indochina War, which is more of like a broad uh, conflict. It, it's, they don't kind of narrow it just to America as it's, you know, there's multiple invasions of Vietnam from different countries. They call it the Vietnam War. They call it the American War, and they also call it the American War for Aggression or American War of Aggression. So, you know, that's also interesting, this the naming convention. But I'm hoping to, again, interview kind of in a structured interview format. So I'll have like a specific list of questions to chat with Vietnamese history teachers about to kind of see what are they focusing on in their classrooms? What are they highlighting? What kind of um, learning outcomes do they want students to learn from this conflict? Um, and then kind of seeing how that compares to a lot of the education in America. Because again, I'm very curious as to how this war is remembered in, in these different countries. In particular, because you know, American high schoolers, like you're like we're discussing, like they can feasibly read about this war on a couple of pages in a history textbook in class and then go to biology and forget about it, which is saddening in a lot of ways. And again, it won't have the impact that we want to avoid future wars like we're talking about. But, you know, from from like what you're saying, like wars, especially like in this area, it's very, very clear that it has lasting impacts. And this is not something that Vietnamese students can kind of just read about and continue on. Like there are, you know, obviously still veterans from that war living here. Um, there are still people impacted from the chemical wars. There are like on every, um, at least in Hanoi, a lot of different monuments to the war just you know so it's not something that you could just kind of forget about and and uh move on with your day this is something that the folks of vietnam and much of southeast asia has to live with um every day yeah and i i think as we begin this conversation it's important to focus the emphasis on who are the main stakeholders here and when you look at something like the vietnam war and you then you compare it to how it's taught in the United States, I mean, the the vast amount of hardship was borne out by people in Southeast Asia. And the, the numbers vary, but we're talking somewhere between three and four million people were killed in Vietnam. Uh, as you mentioned, the lasting effects of what I think we can only describe as chemical warfare, uh, the use of the dioxin agent orange to destroy vast sections of rainforest in vietnam uh, and of course the sub uh, subsequent birth effects uh, that let were uh, prevalent and still are prevalent in the vietnamese population and then there's the matter of just the extreme amount of bombs that were dropped uh, i yeah. think i heard and i'll talk about a few countries here but laos uh, the adjacent country to Vietnam became the most bombed country in human history uh, in terms of how much land space Laos takes up per the amount of bombs dropped on it. There are still something along the lines of 100 million unexploded bombs in Laos. And I, I don't know the numbers for Cambodia or Vietnam, but I must assume that they are similar. 
I believe that there's something on the order of 20,000 people that have been killed since the Vietnam War just in Laos. So I'm again, I, I, I assume those numbers are significant in both Cambodia and Vietnam as well. There's the totally connected issue of the Cambodian genocide. Uh, and people kind of look at that as a standalone event, as in most people. If they learn about it, American students learn about the Cambodian genocide as, you know, the Communist Party in Cambodia came to power under the leadership of Pol Pot and committed this act of mass violence, wherein, you know, anywhere from 800,000 to 2 million people were killed through a variety of mass murder and also uh, starvation. But you can't understand that unless you understand the intense massive terror bombing of Cambodia that was conducted by the United States. The, these things are uh, intimately connected. Yeah. But yet in the United States, we're so detached from that, that there is actually this phenomenon I'm sure that you're familiar with called the Vietnam syndrome. Yeah. And this was developed in the years after Vietnam. And it didn't mean, you know, the Vietnam syndrome, you might assume means the cancerous effects of the Agent Orange used or the the post-traumatic stress inflicted on quite literally millions of people in and families in Southeast Asia. But no, actually the Vietnam syndrome, the way it was described in the United States was this uh, purported feeling among the American populace that there was a hesitancy to use force in the future against other countries because of fear of having another Vietnam wherein almost 60,000 Americans were killed. Uh, and, and you can see this in like the words of leaders. In fact, after the Gulf War in 1991, which was really just a mass slaughter on the part of the United States in Iraq, George H.W. Bush got on the microphone and said, by God, we've licked the Vietnam syndrome, right? So it's like 16 years after the official end of the Vietnam War. Yeah. And that that's what it means to him. It's like this is so in the psyche of American or at least the leadership of Americans that the 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 lesson they took out of Vietnam is that this might be this is bad, but not because of the horrendous devastation caused to Vietnam and the really what is a gigantic war crime and the suffering inflicted. No, the damage inflicted is actually that the United States might not be able to conduct a similar operation in the future. And that was what the Gulf War symbolized to George H.W. Bush. But John, before we go forward, I, yeah. I think it's worth asking because, you know, you are an American going to Vietnam. I'm sure that means something to the people there. Um, and I, I think, of course, you as an American are going to carry your own assumptions. So I, I'd like to know what are your assumptions about going to Vietnam at the moment? And I would ask, you know, I know you're you're an educated person on this topic more than most Americans are, but still, you obviously you have a perspective of the Vietnam War as I do that is, of course, affected by the larger culture here in the United States. So, what is your initial perspective going in, and what are your assumptions, and uh, what do you imagine might be open to being? influenced or changed. Uh, so let's start with that. What are your assumptions going yeah. into this study of the Vietnam War? Yeah, I think, um, I think like, again, I, I don't really know exactly what to expect, but what I'm assuming is that, that the way that 
the Vietnam War is going to be spoken about, taught about, and remembered here is going to be uh, obviously much more, um, I don't know, much more like tangible, something that folks identify with a little bit more than America. Because again, the way we teach it in America and the way we kind of remember it is very, very skewed. But I am kind of assuming that it's going to be kind of a standardized way of teaching it um, with with kind of a, a very centralized government control of exactly what is taught. Uh, I think that's kind of like, uh, you know, through the Ministry of Education here, how it's done. But again, I'm, I'm, I don't know. That's just kind of my initial thoughts and what I've been reading so far. I've also kind of am assuming that um, kind of to a more accurate point that it's going to be presented in a way that the Americans were the aggressors. It's going to be kind of a little bit more accurate <laughs> in terms of how it's presented, but I am kind of open to, to see, I don't want to like reach a conclusion before I start, you know what I mean? So those are kind of my bigger assumptions, but I'm curious as to see particularly and specifically kind of how this is taught. And uh, one other thing that I just wanted to quickly mention, because this just happened yesterday and I'm hoping that um, I can move forward with this, but you were talking about the unexploded ordinances in Vietnam and Laos in particular. And that is something that I also want to kind of like engage with too, although it's kind of tangential to my research, I'm, I'm interested in that. And hopefully I just reached out, there's a, a great organization called Peace Trees um, that operates here in Vietnam where they go to um, uncleared areas, clear it of unexploded ordinances and plant trees, mostly because Agent Orange has destroyed much of the foliage. And I, I'm in contact with them, and then we'll see what happens. But hopefully, I can meet up with them and see exactly what they do, and that'll be an interesting, <laughs> should be an interesting time if I can do that. Yeah, it really is hard to wrap your mind around as a citizen of the United States, like the level of damage that was done to that part of the world, where you, again, you have all these unexploded bombs that still kill people. It's like, even if for whatever totally irrational reason you support the idea that the United States had the right to invade Southeast Asia. What right would they, do they have to still be killing people through those actions 50 years after the fact? I mean, it's just, but I think, I think that's also kind of like a very American perspective. I think on history in particular, it's just like, well, that happened so long ago or, you know, like we have to just kind of move on. And again, that kind of, uh, I don't, I think that thought process is going to be very different. Also just kind of culturally here at Vietnam where they seem to be very tied to their history. And that's kind of a huge part of their identity. But again, like in America, it seems to be like, oh, come on, it happened so long ago, you know, let's move on. As opposed to noticing the reality of like people are still dying from that war due to either, you know, indirectly, directly in the sense that through unexploded ordinances that explode or through something like Agent Orange and chemical effects. Like these are still things happening. Um, so again, I think that's going to be a big cultural difference too. Yeah, I think that we also, students in the United States, which hopefully I know you're going to come back and communicate, just do not understand the trauma of what it's like to be in a country that is under attack by the most powerful country in the world. Like, you know, like I, I've talked about this with regards to North Korea, what, what, why is North Korea the way it is? Well, they survived one of the most traumatic incidents in world history, which was the bombing by the United States. In the case of North Korea, 
600,000 tons of bombs dropped on the country. Every major structure destroyed. People had to live in caves. Every major dam destroyed. Curtis LeMay bragged that they killed approximately one-fifth of the Korean popu- North Korean population. I don't think that we can possibly understand that. And I think it that holds true for Vietnam as well. You know, after the Oklahoma City bombing, which happened in 1995, I know you were you were very young at the time, John. Yeah, I was. Uh, and I don't remember it that well either. I was in like fifth grade. But there were a lot of studies about like the psychological effects of people who were around that, you know, and survived that single bomb attack, which was devastating. It killed, you know, a little over 100 people. But now extrapolate that to hundreds of thousands of bombs dropped on these countries amongst poor people who have minimal defenses, who uh, don't, oftentimes were not uh, taking sides in the conflict. Not that, not that I hold it against anyone for taking the side of the, of the parties, the, the National Liberation Front or the North Vietnamese army that were resisting this imperial invasion, but but even parties that were not aligned with anybody faced this kind of destruction you know, those kinds of psychological effects, you cannot imagine that they would just go away after, you know, what it's been 50 years. That's two generations, basically. <laughs> and I, I do think that, like, there's something to that, like, looking into this devastation as an American where it really just was not visited on the United States. The extent to which it was visited was visited on people who were in the military, which, it you know, there's a whole category of entertainment and, and mm-hmm. uh, media devoted to the plight of Vietnam veterans. And it is real. But just imagine yeah. what that's like for the civilian populace of these countries, right. which far outnumbers the amount of American veterans. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And that's kind of like where I left, actually, uh, my students. You know, like, like we were saying last time I saw you was on Wednesday, my last day um, working before I came here. Um, and that's kind of exactly where I kind of situated this with my students of like, when students were asking me, what, what was I doing in Vietnam? You know, my, my answer and my kind of like framing of this is like, what's, what is war like? Um, and, you know, eventually getting to the, the conclusion of like, we don't really know as Americans, we, we don't know. We haven't had a war on our soil, you know, I guess since the, the civil war and we haven't had a foreign war in since what, 1812, I guess, <laughs> technically even that. But anyway, um, and again, that kind of same framing of like, you know, as Americans, without having exposure to what it's like to be in a war zone, we, we literally can't fathom the destruction and the trauma that results from something like that. And other countries, you know, especially countries in which the United States has gone to war with, don't have that privilege. You know, we, like we're saying, like Vietnam does not have the privilege to just, again, read two paragraphs about what the Vietnam War was and then go to a different class and that's it. It, it, This is a lasting impact. Yeah, and, you know, I I keep thinking about something that is interesting to me, which is the psychological effects of these kinds of wars, which reminds me of a study that was done about victims of drone bombings in Pakistan by Stanford University, and it's called Living Under Drones. 
And it talks about the effects of the Obama drone campaign in Pakistan, which was devastating, killed thousands of people. But, and of course that's devastating, but also the effects on people's psychology, specifically children, about what it's like to grow up when machines are firing missiles from the sky that are killing people that are close to you and what that it's like to grow up, what it's like to grow up under that condition and what it's like to develop your political and social ideology under those conditions and how you might feel about the world. And, you know, you know, again, look at the United States and how the United, how many people in the United States reacted to an event like September 11th, an event like, you know, the Oklahoma city bombing. And you, you might imagine that these kinds of, of the uh, destruction and violence inflicted on civilian populations might have a radicalizing effect on some people. Uh, but John, I, I, before we close out on your particular goals here, I do want to ask you, like, do, do, do you think that there's any limitations to your ability as an American to try to understand the uh, experience that you're trying to understand amongst the Vietnamese population? Yeah, I think like for the first first thing is as someone who hasn't lived through it, hasn't lived, you know, I'm not Vietnamese. I there's no way I can fully understand. You know, I think that's clear. But um, some more like practical limitations is it's going to be definitely um, translation. Uh, I think that's going to be a huge limitation for uh, for me because I got to you know make sure everything's translated and back translated. I think um, just the sheer, like, we're, again, I'll, we'll see exactly how I go about this, but trying to get a sample from Vietnamese high schools is going to be difficult. Like, I'm trying right now to kind of randomly select um, between, like, 15 and 20 high schools in northern Vietnam. There's, you know, a cu couple different provinces. There's a lot of high schools, and so I can't really, like, do the whole country. I obviously can't do even most of them, I have to get like kind of a small sample, which is going to be limiting, but that's just kind of what has to happen. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I think I'll get a, a pretty clear picture as I go about, you know, going through with it. Cause obviously I'm just kind of in the planning phases right now, but I see those kind of two or three big things that, that come up immediately. And then I'm sure as I go through, <laughs> there'll be much more limiting factors. Actually, one other thing is probably going to be COVID, honestly. Like, I don't know exactly how, as you know, right now I'm quarantining. It was a mandatory quarantine for anyone coming into Vietnam. So I don't know exactly, you know, how that's going to affect my ability to kind of conduct these interviews and travel around. So we'll see. Yeah, I think that you're engaging in something that most Americans and mo most uh, imperialist countries just don't engage in, which is investigating the effects on the people who are, again, the major stakeholders and uh, the actions of the imperialist countries. And, you know, I'll, I'll just close our Vietnam conversation here by saying, like, we do have entertainment in this country, like when people that tailors to the Vietnam War, like a lot of people really like the like Ken Burns series about yeah. Vietnam. 
Uh, and then I will say they have some really good footage in that particular series. It's literally called the Vietnam War. But even that series, and Ken Burns is really famous for that, kind of prefaces the whole series. And I think they literally open up with this this montage where it says it was started by good men with good intentions or something to that. Yeah. It's yep. like, well, man, they did a lot of horrible things that they had good intentions. And to when I hear that, I'm just like, first of all, that's an assessment made by Ken Burns. That's like a mind reading exercise that um, <laughs> you would not engage in if this was some other power considered an enemy of the United States engaging in, right? Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't conduct that same kind of uh, assessment if you were to talk about our next topic, which is Russia versus Ukraine. If Russia were to invade Ukraine, you wouldn't assume that it was a an invasion conducted with good intentions by good people. You would assume nefarious intent. Now, the numbers start to add up here, right? The We're talking three to four million people killed, and I already talked about the cost. At what yeah. point do you not even care about good intentions? So, right, uh, that's the majority of United States coverage of the Vietnam War, and I, I'm specifically talking about in entertainment and also in our education system, is that it was well-intentioned, but it was a disaster. Well, that is not an excuse we give to other countries when they kill millions of people. And at what point do our good intentions, quote-unquote, run out? Uh, at what point are at what point are the actions and results of our actions as a country indicative of the kind of country that we are? Because it seems like other countries, when they engage in activities that kill millions of people, it's always indicative of who they are. At what point are the actions of the United States and the results of those actions indicative of who we are? Yeah. And that brings us to our next topic, John. And I, I know we have a limited time here. I probably got about 15, 20 minutes. But uh, yeah. what have you been thinking about in terms of like what's going on in the world right these days? Yeah. Well, Matt, I'm hoping that you can tell me a bit because, as you know, I've been on a travel swirl for the past four days or so without the ability to kind of like look at or read anything. And I know there are a couple of different issues that have come up that are kind of related to what we talk about. One is, um, the, the ISIS assassination, and one is obviously Russia that's ongoing. Which one, again, you're going to have to kind of take the reins on this because it's been a wild couple of days that I haven't had time to, to read much coverage. So I think those two things in particular are what we should focus on. Which one would you like to tackle first? All right, let's talk about Russia just because I feel like okay. that is the more pressing issue. Let's do it. Well, so can you give like a frame? Obviously, we know, you know, Russia is is uh, you know has what a hundred thousand or so troops on the border. So they say um, with Ukraine. Uh, I, the last I heard, the United States sent something like just a couple thousand, maybe two or three thousand uh, support troops uh, to to NATO allies outside of Ukraine in in <laughs> preparation or at least to, to, to kind of like deter but obviously this is happening in a much larger context of the expansion of nato and broken promises so why don't you kind of give us a frame of anything that's kind of like relevant to this what has very briefly what has led to this and where are we at right now yeah so it, it there's a lot there what i'll start with is that 
you have to look at this in the larger frame of the United States and Russia relationship since the fall of the Soviet Union. And what you have to start with is the understanding that after the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, there was an agreement made between Russia and the United States, Russia at the time reeling from this terrible collapse of their entire society, and the United States assuming the unipolar moment that they had assumed that where they were the global superpower. And George H.W. Bush was president at the time, and his secretary of defense was James Baker. And as per many documents from, and we can back this up with documentation from the National Security Archive and many other sources, George H.W. Bush and his Secretary of Defense, James Baker, agreed with Mikhail Gorbachev that Germany could be re reunified. You know, that famous moments like tear down that wall where yep. Ger Germany becomes reunified. Of course, many people are familiar with that. Germany had sure. been divided between East and West Germany during the Cold War. So Germany could become reunified in exchange for a promise given by the United States, essentially, which controls NATO, yeah. that NATO would never expand eastward. Not one inch, actually, was the phrasing used. And since then, all you need to know is that NATO ex has expanded a thousand miles east to the border of Russia and encompassing many of the nations in the former Soviet Union. Now, this has been accomplished under several administrations. And this is something that was protested by many of the cold warriors, included people like the like Supreme Cold Warrior, George Kennan, and people like Robert McNamara, who warned against this, the, the, they, uh, Robert McNamara wrote a joint uh, editorial in the New York Times in the late 90s about how ill-advised it was to continue to add countries to NATO. Uh, to, uh, sorry, Thomas Friedman, who's in my estimation a terrible journalist, but gave a great interview with George Kennan, the architect of the Cold War in the late 90s wherein George Kennan essentially argues, what are we doing? Adding countries to NATO. Uh, the Russia that has formed since the end of the Soviet Union, these are the people who overthrew communism. Now, w whether communism was really the end of the United States, we could that's a whole other conversation. But the, he was, the point he was making is that the people who overthrew the Soviet Union that were in charge of Russia as of the late 90s, as of the 1990s in general, were not the enemy of the United States. And of course, they were going to view the expansion of an explicitly anti-Russian military alliance closer to their border as a threat. And George Kennan even said that the very same people who are saying this is overhyped that this will be viewed as a threat to Russia are the exact same people that will in the future blame Russia for reacting to this threat. And, you know, that's, I, for me, I feel like that's as much as you need to know that the most ardent yeah. warriors, I mean, people who I find actually 
morally reprehensible, but the, they are consistent in their ideology. They understand what they're talking about. You know, Robert McNamara is not someone who I would praise in any capacity, but he is, he does understand what he's talking about. And he is an ardent anti-communist as was George Kennan, the most ardent anti-communist. And they understood that like any country would view a, a military alliance amassing on their borders, Russia will imagine the same thing. And the idea that Ukraine could ever become part of NATO, Ukraine, the country that has hosted several invasions, including the most deadly invasion in Russia's history, the, the Nazi invasion in the 1940s, which, kill, which ended up killing something like 20 million Russians. The idea that they would tolerate Ukraine becoming part of NATO is ridiculous. But and and last thing I'll say is, yeah, the most recent provocations. Now the provo- the, what the United States is saying is that Russia is amassing troops on the border. Now what's often left out of that is what they mean by on the border is inside Russia. It's their troops in Russia. Russia shares a border with Ukraine. It's about as long as the United States border with the with Mexico. Now, to the extent that they're amassing troops on the border, when they say the border, that's a hundred miles into Russia. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the, the the proof doesn't really bear out that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. And in fact, Ukraine, Ukraine government is saying stop saying russia is going to invade ukraine we don't have any proof of this the only people who are saying this are the united states and great britain russia is denying it which of course people will say well of course you deny if you're about to invade a country but it would look pretty bad if russia continues to deny that they're going to invade and then invade it uh yeah yeah i think i think the historical frame there matters like you know like you're saying with the expansion of nato i think more recently you know folks would look at russia and have this idea um that perhaps they are going to invade and point to crimea as an example can you talk briefly about the crimea invasion what was that 2014 15 yeah sure um yes this is a very misunderstood phenomenon so in let me back this up just a little bit so you had this creep of NATO that I had just talked about from what essentially was a Western European alliance with basically Turkey. And since 1991 has been creeping steadily eastward despite the protestations of Russian leaders. And of course, you you also have to understand what what Russia went through in the 1990s with a huge U.S.-induced largely uh, with U.S. financial planners and economic advisors uh, destroying the Russian economy. And there's all kinds of hardship. Every social metric decreased, including life expectancy and unemployment and everything that you can possibly imagine. But that's kind of outside the purview, purview of this particular conversation. Now, the last straw was Ukraine. In, and in fact, uh, the Sergei Lavrov, communi- the Russian foreign minister, communicated this to the sec- the Russian ambassador, who is William Burns. 
in 2008. And he, you know, six years before the time period we're talking about, 2014, that this is a red line. Ukraine cannot join NATO. This is after they've already seen the Baltic states, some of the Balkan states join NATO. NATO had already managed to amass on Russia's border. Ukraine is, has a huge border with Russia. They had communicated, Sergei Lavrov, that this is intolerable. This is a red line. And I think that WikiLeaks revealed this. They said, he said to, to uh, William Burns, yet means yet, as in no means no. And, th and then he communicated, we can be in Kiev in two weeks. In other words, this is don't don't test us on this. We've taken enough. We've been embarrassed enough. The, the Russia was embarrassed in the 1990s by U.S. economic planners. the The expansion of NATO has been embarrassing enough for us. There's been another. Uh, there's there's a list of other embarrassing moments too. Uh, U.S. invaded Iraq uh, while ignoring Russian. Uh, uh, protestations on the Security Council. Later on in 2011, this is after this, the, Russia was lied to by Hillary Clinton. Uh, she gave Russia assurances that when the United States was going to, and NATO was going to enforce a no-fly zone in Libya, that it would not result in regime change and overturning the Gaddafi government. And lo and behold, they quickly abandoned that and showed, and again, uh, showed the impotency of Russia when it comes to uh, defying NATO or the United States. So when it came to 2014, what the United States and the EU did was overthrow the government of Ukraine. They overthrew the government of Viktor Yanukovych. Yes, he was corrupt. All Ukrainian leaders since 1991 have been corrupt. They overthrew, and I, I mean that in, in, in the sense that governments are corrupt and the the idea that Viktor Yanukovych is corrupt was not unique in Eastern Europe at that, in, in this yeah. time period. So this is one of the most obvious coups ever. The, you had uh, State Department officials like Victoria Nuland caught on tape saying that we are picking and choosing the leaders of Ukraine. And, and Victoria Nuland famously saying, like, we're going to choose uh, this guy uh, who eventually became the prime minister and, you know, fuck the EU. In other words, they were trying to choose the leader of the, uh, of the new government they were trying to form themselves. The United States is trying to decide who is going to be the prime minister of Ukraine. Uh, Lo and behold, the president of Ukraine, Vic Viktor Yanukovych, ag agreed to hold like uh, an election that would take place wherein he might have lost. But they, that wasn't good enough. Uh, you had John McCain, Victoria Nuland, literally handing out cookies in the in Maidan Square, uh, the uh, square in the capital of Ukraine. And days later, the government gets overthrown with the Azov Battalion and other far right wing actual Nazis in yeah. the capital of Ukraine. And the president flees for his life. And then a new election takes place, totally illegitimate. A new president took the place 
of the president who fled for his life as the United States was handing out cookies to the protesters, calling it a victory for democracy. And this new government was extremely pro-Western. And when they did that, Crimea, the which is a 95% Russian-speaking area, uh, Russia already had a base in at Sevastopol. It's their only warm water base. It has been part of it has been a military base for Russia for about 300 years. In other words, longer than the United States has been a country. The United Russia did not invade Crimea. They were in Crimea, what they call an invasion, which is kind of gangster. I, I won't lie; it's kind of gangster. What they did was Crimea held a referendum. And 95% of the population voted to become part of Russia. Again, kind of gangster stuff, but you have to, you know, you have to look at this in the context of the government was just overthrown and replaced with a pro-Western government. That was, and put it to you like this. If that government was allowed to maintain control over Crimea, the pro-Western government that had just been installed. Crimea is a few dozen miles from Russian territory. That would mean that a NATO base could potentially be miles from Russian territory, the biggest naval base that Russia, that Russia has, the Sevastopol base on the Black Sea. And, and you just have to ask yourself, would the United States tolerate Russia putting a military base anywhere in the Western hemisphere, let alone in a country that borders the United States like Mexico or Canada. And all we need to do is look at what happened the last time that Russia put a military base in the Western hemisphere. It was yep. the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yep. Yeah, and I think like all of this uh, kind of circles back to the idea that if we, if we can frame all of these present events in a historical lens, if we can bring in that, whether it's the Vietnam War, right, or whether it's um, what's happening right now in Russia, like if we can, as if we can put into our culture that we like actually critically think about these historical events, hopefully we can avoid like future wars, future terrible actions, because like you're saying, like right now we have a very divorced kind of look at this where we're looking at, oh, Russia's amassing troops, that must mean that they are the bad guys and they are going to invade and we need to fight, um, which leads to obviously another war in one way or the other. And so having like that, that frame, that historical frame that kind of contextualizes all of this, I think, I think that's the theme of today's podcast, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. And, but mainly John, I, I, I do want to wish you luck and you got to keep us updated. You got to promise you're going to yes. keep us posted as to your research, you know, I know the listeners of the podcast are definitely going to be interested in how people in Vietnam view the war that we call the Vietnam War. And I, it's something I want to learn about as well myself. And, and you know, I try, I've, I've tried to do my own research on the Vietnam War and I've, I've, I've read some good books about it, but I absolutely want to hear what people in Vietnam, the victims of U.S. imperialism, have to say about it. Really not a perspective we've heard on this podcast before. Yeah. Um, Hopefully uh, we can do some more with that. Absolutely. So John, promise us that you're going to keep in touch and that we're going to hear from you soon and keep us posted with your research. 
I absolutely will, Matt. What a great time coming back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, John. We'll see you soon. See ya. This is In the Context of Empire, and this is your host, Matt McKenna, and we hope to see you next time.